Welcome to Dig Deep. I'm so glad you're here for our closing episode of our series, Cleaning House. And before we get into our content for today, I need to make an announcement because starting next week, Dig Deep will be moving to Wednesdays from Tuesdays. And I know for a lot of you, this doesn't really affect you at all because you listen whenever you get a chance throughout the week. But I know from hearing from several of you that for a lot of you, you have a routine on Tuesday mornings where you listen to Dig Deep first thing on your way to work or in the morning while you're having your cup of coffee. And first, I just want to say that I am so honored that you would spend your Tuesday mornings with me. I am so, so grateful that you listen and for your feedback. And so I am hoping that it will not cause too much trouble for you to move that time to Wednesday mornings. As my husband and I have looked at our schedule for this fall, we've realized that that's what's realistic and workable for our family going into this fall. So starting next week, Dig Deep will officially be on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. instead of on Tuesdays. So thanks for going on this journey with me and being flexible as we move forward. I really, really appreciate it. So when I was in high school, I was a part of a Bible study group of girls that were my age and grade, and we went through most of high school together in our youth group. And so it was pretty much the same core group of girls throughout the four years. And I don't remember whether it was my junior or senior year, but we had a D-team, that was the name of our Bible study, sleepover. And we did this from time to time just to have more time to bond and talk than our regular weekly Bible study time. And so we were hanging out and doing normal, fun, girly stuff, playing games, talking, and just having fun together, laughing together. And then the conversation turned a little bit more serious, and we talked about a couple things, and then there was a lull in the conversation. And I noticed a couple of the girls in the group turn and kind of look at each other with knowing looks, almost as if to ask, like, is now the right time? I don't know. And then one of the girls turned to me and said, hey, Jess we've talked and we need to talk with you about something. Well, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, but when someone says, we need to talk, or, hey, I know what you did, you can tell some sort of an intervention is about to take place. And my heart started pounding, my ears were ringing, my brain was frantically taking an inventory of all of the things in my life. Do I have any secrets that I haven't shared with them? Is there something that they've discovered that maybe even I haven't discovered about myself? It's a horrible feeling. So you can imagine the wave of relief that washed over me when they gently and lovingly said, Jess, you have a unibrow and we want to help you tweeze your eyebrows tonight for the first time. And I breathed a huge, huge sigh and said, oh yeah, sure. That's fine. And yes, it was my high school Bible study girls who helped me take my first tiny baby step out of my abnormally long, awkward phase. But in all honesty, that same group of girls, there were many times where they called me to the carpet on things in my life that were much more difficult. They asked the questions that unearthed things in my heart that I was hiding from everyone else. And they were my first experience outside of my family of true, vulnerable Christian community. And so as we wrap up this series today, I want to ask the question, what is the question that you hope no one will ask you? What is the question that you hope no one will ask? 
I want you to imagine for a moment that you're standing in the closet of your heart. In this series, we've talked a lot about the metaphor of a closet and the things that we keep hidden inside of us. And I want you to imagine that you're standing in that closet. You're taking an inventory of all of your thoughts, your beliefs, your desires, the things that you've done, the memories of things that have been done to you, the words that you've said, the words that have been said to you, everything, everything that you have stored up inside of your heart and your mind. And now, imagining yourself in that closet, I want you to imagine that there's a secret crawl space in the very back, the place where you keep the deepest and darkest things, the things that you're most desperate to hide from the world. And it's in that crawl space that I think we all have that we keep the dark things that we're hoping no one will ever find the question that no one will ask, the things that maybe we're even hoping we can hide from ourselves and make them go away completely. And if that crawl space had a name, it would be shame. It would be shame. The thought of someone discovering what's in there, the things that we've done, the things we're thinking about doing, the things that have been done to us in the past, the thought of someone finding the key and unlocking that space makes our stomachs flip and our palms sweat. And that horrible, that gut-wrenching feeling is called shame. And as we discuss shame today, we need to go back to the moment when shame first entered the world. In Genesis 1, chapter 27, we read about God creating the world, and then he creates mankind and places them in the Garden of Eden. We read in verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then We read later on that he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, that he tells them to reign over all of the creation. And then it says in verse 31, God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. And then in Genesis 2, God adds a critical detail to this beautiful masterpiece of his creation that he just stepped back and said, this is a good thing. What I've made is good. And in Genesis chapter two, verse 25, we read now the man and his wife, Adam and Eve were both naked, but they felt no shame. Christine Kane in her new book, Unashamed, points out something really interesting about this verse in the Bible. She says, it's interesting that God points out that they felt no shame. I mean, that he could have said that they felt loved, they were naked and they felt accepted or they felt um, pure, but he says they felt no shame. And in her book, Unashamed, she says this about this passage, perhaps God makes a point of telling us that they were naked and felt no shame because he knew that shame would be one of the most dangerous weapons against us. Perhaps he wanted us to know from the beginning that shame was not part of his original plan for us. The perfect state for humankind is a shame-free life. The perfect state for humankind, the way God intended it to be, is a shame-free experience of life. And so as we talk about shame, it's first really important that we explain the difference between shame and guilt. And we will talk a little bit about guilt today because shame is sort of guilt's evil twin. We feel guilt about the things in our closet that are the mistakes we know we've made. We've talked a lot in the series about the choices we make, the things that we think, our our attitudes, our patterns of behavior, 
the mistakes that live inside of us. We feel natural guilt for those. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But shame is an extension of guilt that doesn't just say you made a mistake. Shame says you are a mistake. So the guilt that we feel for the things that we have hiding in our closet, shame shoves them deeper inside of us into that crawl space where they have even more power over our lives. Because instead of saying, oh man, I made a mistake, we start to believe deep down inside of ourselves in the darkest corners, I am a mistake. And the really scary thing about that is that it leads us to only make more mistakes. Because if we believe we're a mistake, we will start to make mistakes. Instead of thinking, I did something wrong, we start to believe, I am inherently wrong. Instead of saying, oh, this situation that I'm in is so broken, we start to believe that I am broken beyond repair. So as we look at Adam and Eve's story, it's so devastating to see that they made a mistake. We read in Genesis 3, that they chose to break the one rule that God gave them. He commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7, we read, After they've been lured in, the serpent offered them the fruit. They took it and they ate. It says in verse 7, At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And what's really interesting in the interaction that follows is that Adam and Eve never admit their guilt. They never admit that they made a mistake. They both try to pass the blame onto someone else. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. They refuse to admit their guilt, and instead they chose to hide in their shame. See, guilt is the natural result of sin. Guilt is our regret over the mistakes that we've made, and we need to address that first, and we'll get back to shame in a minute, because unaddressed guilt will lead us to unhealthy patterns of shame. So in this series, we've said that we need to fight these things that live in our closets and get them out of our hearts. And and we've said we fight envy with gratitude. We fight anger with mercy. We fight greed with generosity. Last week, we talked about fighting lust with a sledgehammer. And today we're going to talk about how to handle guilt. And we fight guilt or handle guilt through confession. In the Old Testament, we read about King David. And King David Two of his most famous associations are David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. And when we read the story of David and Goliath, it's an incredible story of a young boy who puts his faith completely in the Lord. This is before he is king. He goes and defeats a mighty giant all through his faith and belief that God can do anything. And that was the beginning for King David of a long line of incredible success that he had with the Lord. The Lord used him as a mighty warrior to do incredible things, to lead the kingdom of Israel. And then David goes into an interesting season of life. He decides, instead of going out to war as king, which would have been custom at the time, to stay home in his kingdom, in his palace, and enjoy some R&R. 
One day, while he was strolling around on the rooftop terrace of his palace, he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman on her own rooftop taking a bath. And this woman's name was Bathsheba. And David called for her, had her come into the palace. The two hit it off, apparently. They sleep together, and she gets pregnant. Well, what makes David's bad decision, the mistake that he made here, even more complicated is that Bathsheba is married. And not only is she married, she happens to be married to one of David's right-hand men, one of the men that he had fought with and bled with and trusted deeply, a man named Uriah. And Uriah was out fighting the war that David was at home avoiding. And so David does what a lot of us try to do when we make a mistake. He first tries to do his best to reverse the mistake he's made. And he figures, okay, if I bring Bathsheba's husband home from war and he sleeps with her, then no one will know the difference and they can live happily ever after and I can live happily ever after and we can pretend that this never happened. So that's what he tries to do. But unfortunately for David, Uriah uh, won't go for it. He says, how could I possibly go home and enjoy such luxury relaxing with my wife when my men, who I'm so faithful to, are out bleeding on the battlefield? And so he refuses to take the offer from David. And so David resorts to the next thing that a lot of us will do when we're not able to correct the mistakes that we've made. He tries to cover up the mistake that he's made. And so he gives orders for Uriah to be sent to the very front lines of battle where he'll surely be killed. And then once Uriah dies, David took Bathsheba into his home and married her. And throughout all of this, I think David believed that he had achieved his goal, that he'd covered up his secret, that he'd covered up his lie, that he'd covered up his adultery and his murder. But God knew. And so God sent someone named Nathan, a prophet named Nathan, to David. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that Nathan goes to David and he tells him a story. He says, there were once two men, one wealthy man who had a ton of cattle and plenty and plenty of sheep, a wealthy man with everything his heart could desire. And there was a poor man who had hardly anything to his name, but his family did own one little lamb. And this lamb was more than just a pet. It was almost like a bonus child. It ate at the table with them and snuggled in its master's arms. It was a precious, precious part of their family. And he says the rich man had some friends come to town, and as would be custom, he decided to serve them dinner. And David is tracking with the story at this point and thinking, yeah, of course. I mean, he's going to you know, slaughter one of his lambs and, and feed it to the family. That's what, that's what any decent person would do. And Nathan said, right, well, exactly. But instead of taking one of his many, many lambs, he went and stole the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it and served it to his guests. And David is furious in verse 5, says, that man must die. And without hesitation, Nathan turns on him and says, David, you are that man. You could have had anything you wanted, but you took Uriah's one wife, and then you took his life from him, his one life. You are that man. All of a sudden, all of David's mistakes and his guilt were pulled out into the open against his will, and he was completely exposed. 
And what's amazing about the Bible is that in the book of Psalms, we have two Psalms that are believed to have been recorded after this event took place, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And here's what David says in Psalm 32, starting in verse 3. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And in verse 2 of that psalm, David celebrates, Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. David is celebrating the freedom that he experienced when he confessed his guilt and was forgiven by God. But that process began for him when he was discovered. Against his will, he was found out, called out by the prophet Nathan. I once heard someone say that the very best thing that could ever happen to you would be for your deepest, darkest secrets to be broadcast on the evening news. That the best thing that could ever happen to you would be that your deepest, darkest secrets be broadcast on the evening news. Why? Because living with secrets, living with guilt is oppressive. As David describes in the psalm, it takes his strength away. It makes him feel incredible pressure and anxiety. He groans under the pressure of keeping the guilt inside of him. But when it's pulled out into the open, it has an opportunity to heal. It's only in confession that we can find freedom from guilt. Guilt over the mistakes that we've made. But Adam and Eve fought against confession. And instead of confess what they did, guilt, they tried to hide who they were, shame. Remember, guilt says you made a mistake Shame goes deeper and says, you are a mistake. Shame researcher Brené Brown, author of the book Daring Greatly, defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. See, because shame is so connected to who we believe we are, embracing shame will start to bend our lives. It starts to shape our lives around that shame, around that belief. If we believe we are a terrible person, it will lead us to do terrible things. If we believe we are a mistake, we will make more mistakes. If we believe we're unloved, we will struggle to ever truly love others. So we have to fight against the grip of shame. The first step of doing that is fighting guilt with confession, bringing the things in the closets of our hearts out into the open. And so whether that's a topic that we've hit on in this series, envy or greed or lust, or it's something completely different. If, if when I asked last week, what's in the suitcase for you, you breathe a sigh of relief thinking, okay, she hasn't hit on my topic yet. She hasn't hit on my secret yet. That is the thing inside of you that is taking strength from you, the guilt that needs to be confessed. So we process our guilt through confession, and we fight shame with vulnerability. We fight shame with vulnerability. 
Are you familiar with Post Secret? This started several years ago. It was a fascinating social experiment that has absolutely exploded. Frank Warren, actually from right here in Germantown, Maryland, near where I live, started this project by handing out 3,000 self-addressed stamped postcards to people in metro stations. And the postcard read, you are invited to anonymously contribute a secret to a group art project. Your secret can be a regret, fear, betrayal, desire, confession, or childhood humiliation. Reveal anything as long as it is true and you have never shared it with anyone before. Now, years later, Frank has received over one million postcards. He's published six books of those postcards, and now there's a Smithsonian exhibit at the U.S. Postal Museum in D.C. And just to give you an idea of some of the things, if you're not familiar with Post Secret, some of the things that people confess, it's absolutely fascinating to to read them. They go from lighthearted things like, I give decaf to customers who are rude to me, and I've abused my copy room privileges, to darker things. Like, I've used my toddler's urine to pass a drug test to get a job at a prison. My husband and both my children believe my parents are dead, but they are not. I feel like I'm becoming an alcoholic and my cat is the only one who knows. People use these postcards, it's incredible, to expose some of the deepest, darkest secrets. They expose their thoughts and their actions relating to violence, abuse, infidelity, theft, addiction. And in an interview, Frank Warren was asked, what drove you to do this? I mean, and what keeps you doing this so many years later? And he says, I want to help people relieve the burden of keeping a secret. And he's talking about the same burden that David just described in Psalm 32. The same burden that Adam and Eve felt that day in the garden as they pathetically tried to cover their bodies and hide in the bushes from the God of the universe. Guilt and shame both are burdens that were not part of God's original design for us. They entered the world through sin and they are a burden that God wants to take from us because he loves us. Remember, guilt is I made a mistake, shame is I am a mistake. And one of the most devious aspects of shame that we have to address today is that when it comes to guilt, guilt is linked to the mistakes that we've made. But shame, while usually linked to mistakes that we've made, can just as easily be linked to the mistakes others have made. See, shame has an incredibly sneaky ability to transfer from the mistakes of others onto our hearts. So we feel shame because of that person who abused us when we were a child. Our parents' addiction, the hateful words that that person spoke about us, the lies of the enemy that tell us we're less valuable to God because of our gender or our income or our education or our race. None of those things are related to our own guilt that we need to confess. They're burdens of shame that have been laid on our shoulders by the mistakes of other people. And it doesn't seem to matter whether our shame is rooted in the mistakes we've made or in the mistakes others have made. Shame causes us to hide. And we hide. We all hide. We hide behind our reputations. We hide behind our Facebook statuses. We hide behind numbing behaviors, trying to forget the pain of what happened. We hide behind semi-vulnerability. 
And I know I've struggled with this in my life. We, we are tempted to believe that if we are semi-vulnerable, if we let some light in, that that will be enough. And so we act vulnerable. We share about one struggle in our lives, but we keep the other one, the darker one, the more embarrassing one, the more shameful one. We keep that secret. In many ways, it's easier to share a mistake that we made a year ago than it is to share about the mistake that we're thinking about making today. We need to fight shame with true vulnerability. And true vulnerability is terrifying. Vulnerability feels like crawling into that dark crawl space, swatting away cobwebs and rats, and pulling the secret things out into the open with someone who loves you, who loves God, and wants to see you live in freedom. And so that could be a counselor, a Bible study leader, your spouse, a close friend. Take that relationship with that person that you trust and go deeper through true vulnerability. And this isn't a one-time thing. This is a lifestyle. We need to surround ourselves with people who will ask us those questions, the questions that we hope no one will ask. And we need to foster relationships with people who model true vulnerability, who open themselves up to the questions, who say nothing is off limits. I want to live completely out in the open because that's what God designed me for. So what is the question you hope no one will ask you? Is there someone that you're avoiding because you think they might ask you that question? What are you so desperately keeping hidden? What is it that was done to you? What is it that you've done? What is it that you're thinking of doing that you haven't told anyone? Bring it out into the light with someone. It's painful, but it's worth it. Brené Brown says, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. And this is right in line with what David said in Psalm 32, verse 2. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Shame hates being brought out into the light. And the greatest truth you and I will ever hear is that the God who created you is a God who gently comes down from his throne. He's a God who walks in the garden to find his beloved creation. And he's the same God who sent his son Jesus to walk this earth to bring his loved ones back, to forgive their guilt and restore them to a state of freedom, the life free from shame, the life that we were originally created for, the perfect state the original design for humankind is a shame-free life. God created humanity. He created you and he declared it good. And then sin entered the world and our mistakes brought with them guilt and shame. And Jesus came and died for you and for me. He defeated death and rose again back to life to redeem us, to heal the brokenness that we could never fix ourselves, and to bring the light of his loving forgiveness into those dark corners, those dark crawl spaces of our hearts and our minds. 
Luke 19, verse 10, contains a beautiful promise that reminds us the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus came to seek out those who were hiding, and he seeks us, searches us out, not with an intent to punish, but to save. A few weeks ago, I was tucking our son into bed, and he was telling me about the episode that he had watched of one of his favorite shows that day that involved a fire rescue. And he explained again to me that he would love to be a fireman when he grows up. And I said, I know, buddy, I think that'd be awesome. And I decided to take the opportunity to go over some fire safety with him again, as it's good to do from time to time. And we hadn't done it in a while. And so I said, buddy, you remember what we're supposed to do in a fire? And he said, oh, I think so. And I said, well, remember, you, you know, you want to get down low on the ground because the smoke goes up in the air and down on the ground you're you'll be safer it's safer to breathe down there and he said right right get down on the ground and I said and you want to try to get toward the windows or the doors you want to try to get out of the house remember and he said right or I can crawl down and hide in my fort and he occasionally from time to time will have some sort of fort in his room and I grabbed his face when he said that and looked him in the eyes and I said oh no, buddy, you don't ever want to hide in your fort. Not when there's a fire. You need to stay out in the open. You need to try to get out of the house and you need to call out for mommy and for daddy so that we can find you or so that the firemen can find you. Promise me you'll never hide. And he looked in my eyes and said, okay, mommy, okay. And I want you to imagine that your heavenly father has his hand on your face And is saying, never hide. Please, promise me you'll never hide. Call out to me. Reach out to me. I came to seek and save the lost. I love you. I'm on mission to find you and to set you free. Never hide from me. I know we don't normally do this on the podcast, but I would love to close out this series and our time today by praying with you. So will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you love us so much and that you didn't create us to live lives marked by guilt and shame. And God, we know that we've made mistakes and we feel the effects of the mistakes others have made in our lives that cause us to hide, that cause us to shove secrets into the dark corners of our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we know that you love us and you want us to live in the light, that you want us to drag those things out through confession and vulnerability so that you can redeem them, so that you can forgive us for the mistakes we've made and you can heal the damage of some of the mistakes made against us. So help us to stop hiding. Help us to trust you and to reach out, call out for your love. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you as we close out today, if you want to go deeper on this topic of shame, if this has pushed a button for you in your heart, I want to encourage you to read Christine Kane's book, Unashamed. I um, absolutely loved it and learned a lot, and it brought a lot of things to the surface for me. So I think it's an incredible, incredible resource. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, 
I encourage you to pick that up. Thank you so much for joining me for this series. As always, I'd love to hear from you about how God is using the podcast in your life. You can email me um, using the contact page of jessalston.com. I love to stay in touch with you that way. And just as a reminder, next week, Dig Deep is officially moving to Wednesdays. So thanks so much for being here for this series, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.